In one of his books, Harry Fosdick tells the story of a man who was an older gentleman and decided he was going to make his way to the city of Detroit. And so he was very excited. It had been a long time since he'd visited his hometown. And so he got on the bus and he rode for hours and hours. And finally, when he arrived at the bus station, he got off and he knew the first stop he wanted to make in Detroit. He wanted to go to Woodward Avenue, one of the most famous streets in the entire city, home of the Fox Theater, a stop for anyone who wants to make it through Detroit and see the tourist spots that are along the way. And so he asked the first person he met, he said, can you tell me how to get to Woodward Avenue? And that person looked at him and was a little bit confused. Uh, He didn't really seem to understand what the man was talking about. And he said, you know, I don't know the way to that street. You'll have to ask someone else. Well, the older gentleman thought that was a little bit odd, but he went on to the next person he saw and he said, could you tell me how to get to Woodward Avenue? And that person looked at him and said, you know, I've lived here all my life. I don't think there is a street in this city called Woodward Avenue. Well, the older man was just indignant at this point. I mean, he had been to Detroit several times. He knew that Woodward Avenue existed and he went to person after person and he found out that no one seemed to know where this mysterious street was. They didn't know how to get there and most people didn't think it ever existed. Well, the older gentleman was right. There is a Woodward Avenue, and it's in the city of Detroit. What he didn't know, however, was that he was in Kansas City, Missouri. He had taken the wrong bus, and he had ended up in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, looking for Woodward Avenue. And if you look for Woodward Avenue there, you're going to be looking for a long time, just like he was. It's a humorous story to think about someone knowing exactly where they want to go, but not taking the right bus, not getting there in the right way, This morning, I want us to ask that question. Where are we going? Where are we headed? And how are we going to get there? I know that this morning there are many of us here that are are visiting, uh, that are family members and and relatives. Some of you are visiting with us for the first time. and, And if you are, we're deeply grateful that you're here. We want to find out ways that we can serve you better. Some of you, this may even be your first time worshiping with the church. And we're excited to share that with you. And we want you to feel free to ask us any questions that you might have. Others of us might have grown up in this community, maybe even grown up in this church family. And so we're here today and we come from different backgrounds and we all have different paths that we've taken through life. But that question is important to all of us. Where are we going? And can we take the right bus to get there? Do we know the way to get where we need to go? Nicodemus knew exactly where he was going. Nicodemus wanted to serve God and he wanted to follow his word. Now, I know that because John tells us in the very beginning of this chapter that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And you remember the Pharisees were those, that group of Jewish teachers that na- their name literally meant separated ones. And that's what they'd done. They'd, they'd separated themselves in order to be able to study God's law and to teach God's law. In fact, historians tell us that if you wanted to become a Pharisee, you had to make a vow in the presence of two or three other witnesses that you would dedicate the remainder of your life to living by the law of God. You had to give your entire life in trying to understand and live out God's word and the law of Moses at that time. Now, I can't imagine anyone making that commitment without a a serious focus on trying to do what God wants to do. And we see that sincere heart evident in Nicodemus. Nicodemus knew exactly where he wanted to go. He was also a ruler of the Jews or a member of the Sanhedrin. 
Now, you may know that when Jesus was in power, the Romans ruled the area, but they did allow the Jews to be able to rule over their religious matters and religious conflicts and disputes. So when we think of the Sanhedrin, we have a 70-member group of, of men who ruled over the Jewish religious world. They made the decisions. And if you want to think of a Supreme Court, this was the highest court you could go to to have your case heard before if you were a Jew living in that time. And so Nicodemus not only was a teacher of the law, but he was evidently well-respected enough to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus knew where he wanted to go. And we also see that he has that sincere desire to do God's will because he comes to Jesus. Now you can imagine this scene at night. It's dark outside. Nicodemus walks in the door where the Savior is and asking him these questions. Uh, many have, have wondered why he came at night. It could be that such a well-respected teacher of the Jews might not have wanted anyone to see him entering in. Uh, just a, a chapter earlier, we see that one of the first things John tells us Jesus did is that he cleans out the temple. And so we see that he overturns the tables of those who had set up shop in the temple and they were changing uh, money, they were changing to the appropriate currency, they were selling sacrifices to people who had traveled in from afar and they were making a pretty tidy profit themselves. And Jesus turns over those tables and casts out the money changers and tells them that this is a house of worship and not a den of thieves. And you can, you can be sure that that would have caught the attention of the Pharisees. You can be sure that people that were in Nicodemus' circles were talking about Jesus. It may be that this was a time when he just wanted to study. Rabbis were known to study in the evening and even late into the night. And whatever the case is, I think it's impressive that a man with Nicodemus' background came to Jesus at all. That he was that concerned about following God, that he was willing to listen to this man who had been very controversial in some of his teachings and even some of the signs that he'd performed. You see, Nicodemus, you can tell by his words in verse 2, when he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He knew that Jesus was special. You even have this teacher of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, that uses the word for teacher, rabbi, when he's speaking to Jesus. So he knows there's something special about Jesus, but he's sincerely confused. He's searching for the truth. I think Nicodemus, at this point, is a pretty good picture for us to have in mind of, of many of us. Because if you think about us and, and our society, especially this time of year, there is a focus on Jesus Christ this time of year that is unmatched any other season that we might experience. Even in today's society, there are people today who are thinking more about Jesus and specifically the birth of Jesus than at any other time of the year. Now, obviously, we don't know the day that Jesus was born. We can know what the Bible tells us. We can know where it took place. We can know how it happened. But we can't know the exact date. And in fact, as Christians, we want to celebrate not only the birth, but His entire life, the, His mission, His death, burial, resurrection. We want to celebrate that every time we come together to worship and every day of our lives. But isn't it an incredible opportunity this time of year when there are people that, that are all around us and maybe even we are those people who never before have spent much time thinking about Jesus but are now focused on that, that event that took place, that life that was lived so many years ago. In fact, there are probably many people and we may be one of those people, uh, we might be among that number, who know that Jesus is special, but we're not sure exactly why. We might be like Nicodemus. We know there's something to this. We know he's more than just a human being, but we don't know all the details, and we don't know exactly why. 
We may be sincerely searching for truth. And we may be confused. And this morning, what I'd like us to do is look at Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. To look at how Jesus answers his questions and in turn how he would answer our questions. And as we think about this birth that will change our life, we're going to talk a little bit about the birth that everyone else is focused on. We're also going to talk about the birth that Jesus describes to Nicodemus, that new birth that can truly change each and every one of our lives. We're going to look at all those events through the lens of John chapter 3. And so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to the third chapter of John. We're going to begin reading in verse 14 to find out what Nicodemus needed to know about Jesus. Now remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And so Jesus says here in verse 14, he refers to Moses and an Old Testament event that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. He says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 16, one of the most widely quoted verses in all of Scripture, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now let's pause right there, because that tells us something important to understand about Jesus is that Jesus gives life. Nicodemus needed to know that. Nicodemus needed to know that life comes through Christ. And that although he had dedicated his his life to studying God's Word, to studying the old law, Jesus was the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah that would give the opportunity for everlasting life. Jesus gives life, and what's interesting is we see the motivation for his mission in verse 6. For God so loved the world. That's the motivation behind Jesus' mission, was love. You know, this time of year, there are a lot of gifts given. And parents, you may be able to identify with uh, maybe some of the strategies your children used. I know I've used a few of these strategies, but we can tell when people have ulterior motives, can't we? You know, when you come home from a long day at work and your child tells you, Mom, Dad, have I told you how much I love you lately? Oh, this is great. Have I told you how thankful I am for this? I've cleaned my room. You want, to go, you want to look at it? I've cleaned my room. I've done all the chores, and I'm going to do the dishes when we get done. Probably, if that goes on you know, more than once throughout the week, you might begin to think, I wonder what the motivation is here. Especially if you find you know, a, a suggested gift list laying around the house after one of these chores. You might think, I wonder if they have ulterior motives. In fact, one of my favorite things uh, to do, just uh, in a joking manner and... One of the things that I get a big kick out of is when I really need a teacher for a Bible class. I'll just go up to someone, put my arm around them and say, have I told you how much I appreciate you lately? You know, and we'll start talking. I'll joke around. Most of the time now, they just look at me and say, what do you need? And, you know, prepare themselves to either say yes or no. In fact, I've ruined it for myself now. If I ever wanted to genuinely come up to someone and tell them I appreciated them, they wouldn't believe me. They'd be waiting for the other shoe to drop and waiting for me to sign them up for a class. And we can joke about that, but especially when we think of people that have, have more sinister ulterior motives. That's disappointing, isn't it? Can you think of someone at work who might say certain things, might compliment you, might even give you a gift just because he or she wants to get on your good side, wants to advance their own careers? Maybe someone who will say whatever anyone wants to hear as long as it's good for them. Those ulterior motives can really turn us off. And what's amazing is that Jesus' motive was 
was nothing more than pure love. God loved the world. And I probably ought to stop right there and think about what that statement means. Because the world is very inclusive, isn't it? The world includes not just everyone in this building. The world includes everyone that will drive down Mount Juliet Road in the time that we're here. The world includes everyone you and I will meet today and the next day. The world includes everyone that we stood in line with this past week when we were shopping. The world includes everyone that you're stuck in traffic with on your way home from work. God loved the world. And so as we think about Jesus' mission that was motivated by love, we also need to understand that that love is available to every single person that we lock eyes with on a day-to-day basis. Every single person represents a soul that God loves. In fact, Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that God is not willing that any should perish. God wants all of us, the entire world, to come to repentance and to follow Him. And so that love is open to every single person. And as we think about Jesus' mission that was motivated by love, it's important to realize that His mission was focused on salvation and not condemnation. Now, as we think about that, let's read verse 17. It's wonderful that we memorize John 3.16, but it's tragic if we miss what 17 says. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God did not send His Son in the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Now, obviously, verse 18 tells us that there is going to be a judgment and that those people who don't believe in Jesus are going to be subject to that judgment. And so as we think about these verses, we don't need to take God's judgment out of the equation or out of the picture. But let's consider what Jesus' mission was. Jesus' mission was to save people, to seek and save the lost. It wasn't to round up a bunch of people that need to be punished. It was to look at those people who deserved punishment And you and I would be included in that category and to say, you can have everlasting life. It was a positive mission of good news, wanting to spread that salvation. In fact, it's interesting to see that when Jesus describes hell, when we get a picture of hell in Matthew chapter 25, it's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. God's not willing that any should perish. It's not a place that God wants any of us to go. And so that love is open to us. Now, we're going to have to take some steps we'll talk about later in order to avoid that judgment. But that love is open to all of us. And so it's important to realize Jesus' mission was motivated by love, and it was a mission concerned with salvation. And so as we we think about that, Jesus wants us to accept this life, this eternal life, that we're going to speak of this morning. Now, keeping all this in mind, we see that not only does Jesus give life, but we also see that He gives light. Let's read verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So we see Jesus not only gives life, but he gives light. And that's important because John is going to use this light imagery over and over again in his gospel and also in the letters he writes to the churches. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 4, he describes Jesus as in him was life and that life was the light that enlightens every man. And so the light that Jesus shines is very important for us to understand. Have you ever wondered why darkness is inherently scary? It's inherently foreboding. 
We're, we're afraid of the dark. We, we don't like being kept in the dark. Uh, difficult times in our lives are called dark days of our lives. We think of stormy nights as being very dark. There's something unsettling about being in the dark and not knowing the way we should go. Let's go back to that bus that we began our morning talking about. If you were riding along in a bus in the middle of the night, how would you feel if the driver decided just to turn off the headlights? And you're going, there's no other car on the road, and you're driving without headlights. I don't care how well the driver knows that road. I don't care how many times he's been over that road. I want to have some light guiding the way, don't you? I want to have a light shining to guide the way. And Jesus' life has that sort of light that guides our way. It shows us the way we should be living. And throughout Jesus' ministry, his light would continually shine on people that were caught up in the darkness, and it would show them the way they should be living. Jesus' light would shine on the woman who was caught in adultery and show her the way she should be living, to go and to sin no more. Jesus' light would shine on Zacchaeus, a tax collector who had cheated those around him, and it would show him the way he should live. In fact, Zacchaeus not only gave back what he owed people, but he gave back even more. You see, Jesus is constantly shining that light in the lives of those around him. And in my life, if I'm going to respond to his light, I'm going to realize he shows me a new way to live. I'm going to have to come out of the darkness. Not only does he show me a new way to live, he also shows me a way of life I should avoid. See, true light shows us what the darkness is. He shows us the kind of life we shouldn't be a part of. A life filled with evil and sin. In fact, he even says here in verse 20, everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. How many of you growing up heard from your parents when you wanted to stay out extra late? You might have heard a phrase like this that said, There's nothing good that happens that late at night. You might have heard that before. There's nothing good that happens that late. Nothing good is going to go on out there that late at night. As we think about the nighttime when it gets dark, we know that crime, crime rates go up. We know that it's easier for people to get away with things because they can't be seen. And so as Jesus shines his light, he's going to expose some things in our life. If I've been hiding a sin in my heart, if I've been putting away some thoughts, and I'm really going to let Jesus' words come into my life, he's going to bring that from the darkness into the light. And I'm going to have to make a decision. Am I going to begin walking in that light? So Nicodemus needed to understand that Jesus gives life, he also gives light. And today, if I'm thinking about what, what is being focused on across even this, this country or this world, if people ask me questions about Jesus' birth, I need to understand it's part of Jesus' life-giving mission. It's not the beginning of Jesus' mission, because that mission was begun long ago. And there were prophecies and, and all sorts of things foretelling Jesus coming and living and dying and being raised. And it's not the end of Jesus' mission because after his birth, we see his life. We see the death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. And we know that we today are serving a God who sent his son to die for us and now reigns at his right hand. And so it's not the beginning or the end. It's just a part of Jesus' mission. It's a part of his life-giving mission. And there are some important parts that I need to understand. I need to understand it was different than any other birth that's ever taken place. It was a virgin birth. In fact, Luke would tell us in Luke chapter 1 and verse 34 that when Mary was receiving this message, she would ask an understandable question. She says, how can this be? She was confused. And I think it's interesting that Luke, who was a physician, would write this down to make sure we understood this wasn't like a normal birth. And the angel just responded by saying that the Holy Spirit, the power of God was going to overpower her because this was not going to be a birth from man. It was a birth from God. Some have taken Mary's role in the birth of Christ 
and have exalted her to a place that's, that's higher than any other human because of the role that she played. And before I do that, I need to understand how Mary responds to this message. She refers to herself twice in the first two chapters of Luke as being a bondservant or a slave. And she has this magnificent song that we read where she glorifies God and gives God all the glory. Mary understood, just like we should, that this birth didn't mean she was any more special or more than human. It meant Jesus was more than human. And so as I search through the Gospels, I understand that Mary was a wonderful woman. And just like us, she was a human being. She was part of a bigger plan, a bigger picture. And so as I think about the birth of Christ, it's, the emphasis should be on Christ. It should be on His life that was more than any human life. Not only was it a very special birth in that way, can you imagine what would have gone on as people began to discover that Mary was pregnant and yet she had not yet consummated that marriage? Can you imagine the, the talk that would have gone on behind her back? You can almost hear the whispers, can't you? You can, you can hear what people would have said about her. And so she willingly embraces these challenges because she knows she's part of a bigger plan. It was also a very poor birth. I think it's interesting that God could have chosen to send His Son into the world any way that He wanted. And yet He chose to send His Son into a family that was not wealthy, not powerful, not royalty. A working class family. Joseph worked with his hands to make his living. And he was also born, as we think about these uh, scenes of the manger that we might be familiar with, sometimes those are a little more cleaned up or sanitized than it would have really been when Jesus was born. If you've ever been in a barn where there were stalls of animals, you can understand the smells and everything else that would have gone on in the place where Jesus was born. It wasn't a place of royalty. It wasn't a palace. It was a place where Jesus could identify with us. It was also a birth that was prophesied. And there are several Old Testament prophecies that lead up to the birth of Christ. In fact, Matthew looks at Isaiah Isaiah 7 and 14, and he applies that prophecy of a virgin who would give birth to a son and she would be called Emmanuel. And he applies that to Jesus. Micah 5 and verse 2 would tell us that a ruler was going to come from Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. Hosea 11 in verse 1 describes what would take place after Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt for a short time and then come back out of Egypt. I will call my son. And we know that the prophets had prophesied that he was going to be a Nazarene. And Jesus would live in Nazareth. So as we think about his birth, his birth was a part of his life-giving mission. It wasn't the totality of it. It was just a part. It was also a part of his light-giving mission. In fact, John would say in John 1 and verse 5 that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So as he's talking about Jesus, he's saying that he's shining his light, that perfect life, into the darkness. And as we look at Jesus' life, we see that guide of exactly how we should live. Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1 to imitate him as he imitated Christ. And if we want to follow that light, we're going to have to model our lives after him. And every action that Jesus takes will become an example for us to learn from. And every word that he speaks will become something to put in our hearts and to take with us. And so we need to focus on his entire life if we really want to follow in that light. We think about not only the the light that he's shown by his life, but we also see that even more than being a perfect example, he was the Word made flesh. We often sing the song, Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, Jesus was the Word made flesh. That's how John describes him. He was a living embodiment 
of the Word of God because He kept His Word perfectly. And so as we think about the Word being made flesh, we see not only that His life is an example, but His life is a light that shows us what to do, what not to do, the life we should live, a life we should avoid. John would say in one of his letters in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, he would describe what it means for Christians to walk in the light and to have that fellowship not only with God, but that fellowship with one another. Where in verse 7, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from our sins. And so if I can understand that Jesus gives life and that He gives light, and I can understand that His birth is a part of that picture, a picture of, of obtaining life and light, then I'm left with the question, how do I obtain that myself? Okay, I know where I want to go. I know Jesus gives life. I know He gives light. Now, what bus do I get on to get there? How do I make it there? I know where I want to be, but what road should I take? And that's where John 3 is so helpful because when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, let's look at those first few verses that we read at the very beginning this morning. When Jesus answers Nicodemus in verse 3 of John 3, He says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a birth that everyone is focused on this time of year. I want us to focus on this new birth that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And look at Nicodemus' response. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, Nicodemus apparently is thinking very physically here while Jesus is speaking spiritually. You can imagine how confusing this would be to hear for the first time, even for a teacher like Nicodemus. And in verse 5, Jesus answers and he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is not talking about a physical birth here. In fact, in 6, he would say, flesh leads to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. He's talking about a spiritual birth, a new birth. And so as we think about a spiritual birth this morning, we need to understand its importance and even see the necessity. Did you notice the essential nature of that new birth he talked about? Jesus says twice that without it, you can't enter or even see the kingdom of God. It's, it's not just part of the package. This new birth is absolutely necessary to be a part of God's kingdom. And look at the way he describes it in verse 5. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit. Now at this point... Nicodemus would have been familiar with the the baptism of John, who was going around and was baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus here is pointing to a baptism that would come later. Because we know that when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he talked about being baptized in the name of Christ, you would receive not only the forgiveness of your sins, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. You would be born of the water and the Spirit. Not because there was anything special about the water, but because there was something special about Christ and His sacrifice, and His blood, and what it means to come in contact with that blood in the waters of baptism. I think it's interesting when we look at Nicodemus' question, and he says, how can a man be born when he's old? You know, we might have that same attitude when it comes to spiritual birth. We might say, how can I make this change when I'm at this point in my life? At this stage in the game, how can I make this drastic turnaround? If I've lived my whole life one way, and maybe this is the first time you've stopped to consider what it means to have this new birth, and you're just thinking, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if that's possible. I would encourage you to think about a response that we see in the very first chapter of of Luke, as we read about Mary receiving that vision, that message from the angel. 
The angel says, with God, all things are possible. And you know that's true with us spiritually? It might seem impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And the reason that new birth is necessary is because of the judgment that Jesus went to speak about later. You see, Jesus' mission was to come and give us life and light. God wants all of us to accept that life and light. But the reality is, unless we're willing to put on this new birth, to be born again of the water and the Spirit, we're not going to experience that light in life. We're going to experience that judgment that he talked about in the latter part of the chapter. The judgment that comes to those who haven't believed in Jesus. This morning, I want all of us to think seriously about the light and the life that Jesus offers. God doesn't want any of us to experience the judgment of those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. He wants all of us to come to repentance. And God's love is open to all of us, but there are some steps that we have to take in order to properly obey God, to accept that love. And Jesus tells us here that being born of the water and the Spirit is part of that obedience. If I want to obey God and to live in His love, I'm going to have to totally submit my will to His. I'm going to have to turn my life around, repent of my sins. I'm going to have to confess His name and be buried with Him in baptism and to rise up and walk that new life that John talks about in 1 John 1 and 7, where His blood will continually cleanse me from my sins. As we think about a birth that will change our life, I want us to ask ourselves very honestly this morning, have we experienced that new birth? A total transformation that gives us eternal life in Christ and allows us to walk in His light. If we haven't experienced it, there's no better time to get on the right bus than right now. Wouldn't it be a shame to know exactly where we want to go but not find the right way to get there? Here Jesus makes it very clear. Being born of the water and the Spirit is a way we enter the kingdom of God. Let's get on the right bus together so we can make it to our destination. If you need that new birth this morning, if you want to come forward and put on Christ in baptism, be born again of the water and the Spirit, or even if you have been and you feel like your life hasn't reflected it, and there's any way we can help you, please come and make those needs known.